On the other hand, as an American commander, United States European commander, uh, I am responsible for the military presence and have been for the military presence in Iran. And in that sense, uh, uh, I suppose my expressions of concern have lagged, although they've not been totally lacking. Well, con concretely, <coughs> what might have been done uh, in Iran? Uh, you spoke only of affirmations of support, but uh, were, <coughs> were those to have been platonic? Or, uh, or, or concretely, was there something that could have been done? No, I, I learned from this. There's a full range of uh, problems, I suppose, we could, uh, in hindsight, uh, uh, tick off. I suppose we could question the level of uh, Western greed associated with the influx of modern military equipment that we uh, put into Iran over an extended period, and this has been uh, for an extended period, a number of years, so it's not a partisan issue I'm suggesting here. Uh, secondly, I suppose uh, a greater sensitivity to the pace of modernization. After all, we've, we have a situation here where the problem has not been the failure on the part of the Shah to modernize uh, as rapidly as he should in, in the interest of social justice, but perhaps exceeding the level of tolerance of a society that was just not prepared. Well, were we, we, were we in any sense as mentors there? Well, there's no question <coughs> in my mind that the current American policies contributed to that. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Politics of the Near and Middle East podcast. I'm your host, Professor Joseph Lombardo. And for the latter half of the semester, we will be exploring the social, political, and economic factors of the region in the 20th century. Subjects range from state formation, gender construction, political violence, and extremism. So thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll enjoy. That was an interview done by the late American conservative commentator William F. Buckley on his show Firing Line in February of 1979. Buckley was interviewing Alexander Haig, an American general and later Secretary of State under the Reagan administration. And for today's class, we'll continue to look at the U.S. and Western strategy in the Middle East and its broader political implications, with a special focus on Alexander Haig and what was then called the Greenbelt Strategy. During the decades-long struggle against Arab nationalism and its more left-wing tendencies in places like Turkey and Iran, foreign policy architects in the United States began to realize that their strategy for development was beginning to backfire. By the late 1970s, it was clear that the perception of USAID was held negatively in the region, and that funds coming from the State Department and USAID were either being massively misappropriated or that the policy behind it was too demanding from the recipient countries, reconfiguring their societies to be more palatable 
for options of the U.S. foreign interests and development. And in 1979, virtually every Middle East Studies expert was aghast and surprised at what had been transpiring under the surface of one of America's closest allies in the region, Iran. As we've discussed previously, this was a major turning point for politics in the Middle East, but for the U.S. in particular, it began disastrously. That same year, November of 1979, the Iranian regime held close to 50 American hostages, sparking a crisis which lasted over a year and more or less cost then-President Jimmy Carter his re-election campaign in 1980. Instead, the Republican Ronald Reagan managed to turn the situation around when he, when he was elected in 1980. But again in Lebanon in 1982, Americans were captured by the Hezbollah, or Party of God, a militant group designated as a terrorist organization by the U.S. What all this signaled to the United States, and in the Reagan administration in particular, was the staunch policy of non-negotiation with anti-American elements. But beyond development in foreign age, which appeared to be at the root of rest in the region, there was a conscious effort by the United States and its allies in Europe to actively encourage right-wing Islamist elements across the Middle East in hopes that any fires they may start will be in their favor as they blow eastward across Soviet Central Asia. It was during this period, as Alexander Haig, then Supreme Allied Commander of NATO forces in Europe, would begin to lay out a conscious strategy to realign Islamist and regional dissent against America and focus it toward the USSR. Haig was determined to effectively construct a barrier against the Soviet Union along the Soviet's southern flank. The fact that all of the nations between Greece and China were Muslim gave rise to the notion that Islam itself might reinforce a Maginot-Line-style strategy. And gradually, the idea of a green belt along the arc of Islam took form. The idea was not just defensive. Adventurous military policymakers imagined that risk of Muslims inside the Soviet Union's own Central Asian republics might be the undoing of the USSR itself, and they began to take steps to encourage them sort of mutated ideology that the United States encouraged, supported, organized, or even funded is in fact a perversion of that. It's the same one that obviously was represented by the Muslim Brotherhood, by Atul Khomeini, the Saudis Wahhabis, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Afghan Jihadis, and of course, ultimately, Osama bin Laden. But long before the advent of the George W. Bush administration, the United States found political Islam to be a convenient partner during each stage of U.S. changes to U.S. foreign policy intervention in the Middle East. This is true from the early entry into the region to gradual military encroachment, to its expansion into an on-the-ground military presence, and finally to the emergence of the United States as an army of occupation in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Even after the Iranian Revolution of 1979, the United States and its allies failed to learn the lesson that Islamism was a dangerous and uncontrollable force. The U.S. spent billions of dollars to support an Islamic jihadist movement in Afghanistan, whose mujahideen were led by Muslim Brotherhood allied groups. The United States also looked on uncritically as Israel and Jordan covertly aided terrorist groups from the Muslim Brotherhood in a civil war in Syria. And it looked on as Israel encouraged the spread of Islamism among Palestinians in the occupied territories, helping to found Hamas. In the United States itself, neoconservatives joined CIA's Bill Casey in the 1980s in secret deals with Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini. By the 1990s, when the Cold War was over, the political utility of the Islamic right seemed questionable. 
Some strategists argue that political Islam is a new threat and the new ism replacing communism as America's global opponent. That, however, wildly exaggerated the power of movement that was restricted to poor, underdeveloped states. Still, from Morocco to Indonesia, political Islam was a force that the U.S. had to deal with. Washington's response was often muddled and confused. And it really wasn't until 9-11-2001, where the British administration appeared to sign on to the neoconservative declaration that the world was defined by a, quote, clash of civilizations. It was launched by its global war on terrorism, targeting Al-Qaeda, the most virulent state. But we'll continue the discussion next week.